All right, well, good morning. It's great to see you guys here uh, this morning. I was talking with uh, Tom, I think this week, maybe on Thursday, uh, and he said, you know, the high, historically, the high for today uh, is 77. And he goes, and the low was minus 15. <laughs> I was like, man, what a bizarre time of year, right? Like every morning I wake up and I put on my sandals and I say, this is the day. And then I walk outside, I go, nope, maybe tomorrow's the day, you know? Uh, it's nice out outside at least. So hey, if we haven't got a chance to meet, uh, my name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors uh, here uh, at Salem. Uh, I just want to start, start with, a, with a kind of a short story. Uh, many, many years ago, I think it was in my second year uh, of uh, seminary, and um, a couple of friends and I decided that for spring break, you know, we decided that we would go um, down to Zion National Park. How many of you guys have heard of Zion National Park? Just gorgeous, absolutely beautiful. Um, so we went down and, and we spent, I think, three or four days rock uh, climbing, which was, um, which was just really fun. And, and so part of how, you know, we got there is that we flew into Vegas, to get a car, drove down, and then on our way back, we wanted to, to drive across the Hoover Dam. And so one of the guys in our group, whose name was Steve, a really goofy uh, guy, and uh, you know, just not at all ashamed. <laughs> um, or, or like if people think that he's silly, he's totally okay with that. And so we're driving on the Hoover Dam, and it's like kind of, you know, there's traffic, and so you're going like half a mile an hour. And, and so we're just like, man, okay, this is taking forever. And so Steve rolls down his window, I'm driving, and I'm like, man, what's he going to do? You know, he's just one of those guys. What's he going to do? So he sticks his head out, and then he goes even further, and he puts his whole body out of the car while we're driving, and there's this, this horde of people, right, like walking away from the cars, and there's this young, like, teenage girl, like, like, maybe six feet from him, and he says with the most, like, obnoxious voice, he's like, excuse me? Has anybody here uh, seen where the Hoover Dam is? <laughs> as if you can't, you know, like as if you can't miss it. And this girl just goes, oh, uh, you're on it. <laughs> you know, like how could you miss it? Like how could you miss it? It's, it's right here. It's right in front of you. <laughs> and so as I was thinking about that and doing a little bit of research uh, this week, I found that that's actually um, not that unrealistic. There's something, not so much about the Hoover Dam, but just in general, right, we have this thing uh, as human beings, it's called uh, what's been labeled, or at least, inattentional blindness. I mean, you guys have heard of that. Yeah, yeah, nobody. Okay, great. Okay. Inattentional blindness. Studies have shown that, that we as humans can make incorrect assumptions uh, about, our, about our, our environment, which can inhibit our ability to actually see something that's right in front of your face. That's something that's right in front of you. And so I thought, man, that's, come on, really? And so then they have this picture, like they're going to demonstrate how this works. And I'm like, man, I can, I can do it. I can beat the test. And so they, you know, they show us a picture of this bathroom, you know, sink and whatnot. And then it says, find the toothbrush. And I'm like, <laughs> how hard is that? Come on, you know? And so I look, and there right in the front of the sink is this toothbrush, right? And I click it on the photo, and it puts a little outline around it. And it goes, congratulations, you found the normal-sized toothbrush, I was like, what? And I look, and then lo and behold, in the back, behind this one, up against the mirror on the counter, is like this four-foot toothbrush. And I was like, what? How did I miss that? Like, how? Like, how is that even possible? 
And so here's the thing, it has to do, apparently it has to do with the scale, right? Is that we have a tendency to miss objects that are right in front of us when they are inconsistent with their surroundings. You see, you would think that you go look for a toothbrush, you're going to see the biggest one. And yet, because you're expecting the small one, what you find is the small one. It's really this fascinating and interesting thing, right? So relative size is just one of the many pieces, they say, that contribute to our expectations. And that's an important word uh, for this morning, right? And so one of the guys, he goes on, he says this. He says, when we are not paying attention to something, we are surprisingly likely not to see it. It doesn't matter how big it is. You're not looking for it, you may not see it. You expect something to be small and you might find that you find the small one, but you miss the really big thing. And so here's what's interesting, right? As the study goes on, right? They say, once you know the big one is there, it's like, well, duh, it's obvious. And, I, and so they do a next picture and it says like, is there an abnormal size stop sign? And you're like, well, of course, duh, <laughs> yeah, I got this. And like, it's only because you knew to look for it. It's only because you, could, you knew what you were looking for that you would identify that you would see the largest thing in front of you. Here's the deal. We have been in a series in Ruth. We're moving into the final week of Jesus' life, starting with his triumphal entry. Today, we want to start just with the launching pad uh, of Ruth. Uh, in this last week, you might remember that kind of our big idea this last week was this, is that God's redemption is greater than our struggle right? God's redemption is greater than, right? It's the greater than symbol. It's greater than our struggle. And so in the midst of an uncertain future, not knowing what God is going to do next, right? Here's the deal, right? Is that in the midst of our struggle, the best way through the struggle is to point people to Jesus, right? That's kind of what we talked about. Here's, here's the thing though, right? If we're talking about the greatness of God's redemption, right, this whole thing is contingent on what? Us perceiving and seeing and experiencing the greatness of God's redemption. And so all of a sudden we go, gosh, maybe God's redemption is so big and so great that I've actually missed what's right in front of me right? It's so big, I wasn't looking for it, and maybe I'm missing what's right in front of it. Maybe I have the wrong expectations, whatever it is, right? This is what we're going to find is that God's redemption, his love can actually be easy to miss. And so my hope this morning is that we can actually, you know, begin to see in a new way how big God's redemption actually is. So we're going to jump in uh, to the book of Ruth, um, and uh, we're only going to do these last couple of verses because really this is a springboard or a, or a launching pad for us to really get to Jesus, okay? Because this is a story of Ruth. It's a story about Naomi and Ruth and Boaz and, and the grandson and all that stuff. And yet it ends with this lineage of David, which is kind of a weird thing. So here's what it says. It says in verse 18, it says, now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, and Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Whew, okay, right? Right, you get through that and you go, that's a lot of stuff, a lot of just fathering to get to this guy, to this person named David. Here's the key though, this is what's so important, right, is that David is born where? In Bethlehem, because he's of the line 
of Jesse, of Obed, right, all the way back to Boaz. So the Davidic line, the, 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 the David king that every other king is going to be compared to for the rest of history was born in Bethlehem. Where is Jesus born? Bethlehem, right? Such a small connection, but we're starting to see how these stories are actually coming together, right? So when we looked at Ruth, right, we looked at this, right? Is that it was kind of titled, the, it, not kind of, it was titled, the, the Little Big Story. And, and what I love about this is that the little story kind of represents, you know, you and I and, and Ruth's journey and Naomi's journey and Boaz's journey, right? It's, it's the, the life and the story that's right in front of us. And really, it's the only life, life that, we, that we know, right? And so when you think about the, the little story, right, how does this story go, right? It's all about this. It's about a son, Right? What starts with infertility ends with fertility in Ruth. That's the little story. And, and God brings redemption into the story by providing a, a son. And yet, here's the thing, right? As we're talking about David, as we're moving forward, pointing people to Jesus, the big story that God is enacting here is this. It's not just about a small, little tiny baby. It's about God's son, so you were shifting from the sun to the sun, the divine creator, equal with God, right? That's who we're talking about, and that's where we're going. And so that's how these two stories really are actually blending and pointing us and moving us forward. And so when we think about it from, from an illustration standpoint, so you've got two cups, okay? So let's just say that this story represents the little story. This is Ruth's story, or maybe it's your story or mine. It doesn't matter, right? Let's just say it's roots, and then this is Jesus. This is the God's big story, okay? If you, if you and I, if we come back over here and we look at this from a linear perspective, which is all that we can really do, the only story that I can really see is right here in front of me. I can't see the future. I don't know the future. I'm just realizing I'm just sticking my butt out to people. Sorry. You know, you know, all they can see is this that's right in front of me. But if I come around and I move to God's perspective, all of a sudden what I see is that what starts here is fulfilled here. Do you get that? See, this is Ruth's story, and it's pointing to David, but ultimately it's pointing us really to Jesus. And it's the difference between looking at the story versus looking through the story. And this is where we find ourselves, right, when we think about Ruth. And here's what's so hard, I think, about Ruth, is that Ruth lives in this kind of strange, already but not yet tension, right? So she and her and Naomi, right, they're in the midst of grief and hardship and pain. And all they can see is the story that God is revealing. They don't know the future. They don't know about Jesus. They don't know that stuff. And so what they do know is that God is a redeeming God, that in some way, shape, or form, God's going to show up and do something amazing. That's what they know. But they're still living in the grief. And so it's kind of this tension between knowing and trusting that God's going to show up, but at the same time going, man, right now, I'm, in, I'm still in the middle of something hard. And it's painful. 
right? It's challenging, right? And so here's the deal, right? As I think through this, as I look at our story, you and I, the little story, right? I did this this last week. I kind of started, and I want to just build off of this, right? Is that for so many times, is that you and I, when we think about our little story, we think about it being full, and we want to be full, and this cup contains all of my dreams and hopes and expectations about what God would do for me in life, and yet sometimes what happens is that tragedy or something strikes. And what we realize is that over time is that I'm just slowly leaking. And the more, the more tragedy, the more things that go wrong, the more that I leak, the faster that I drain, whatever that is. But for so many of us, what we end up doing in life is what our expectations are of God. It's like, gosh, I am broken. God, would you keep Keep, 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 keep going, keep going. Oh, I'm full again. But then what happens is that over time you go, oh, I'm half full, right? And before you know it, you're actually in a place where you go, man, I'm not just leaking, I am empty. I'm just empty. It's so how is it that God can redeem this simple? It wasn't simple back then, it's simple now. Here's how it works. Here's my story, here's Jesus, here's how they work. Guys, the only way that you can ever experience true fullness in this life is through Jesus. It's the only way when those cups are put together. You see how that works? And so now all of a sudden we go, okay, so if we're thinking about Ruth and the way that, that we're moving, we're moving into this whole Jesus story fast forward all the way to Palm Sunday. Because you think about Jesus, right? He's been, he's been doing his thing, right? And so he's been teaching and healing. At some point in his ministry, what does he do? He sets his face towards Jerusalem, like with these, with these eyes of, of intentionality, like I came here to do something and I will not be thwarted. My purpose isn't just to teach and just to heal. It's deeper, it's bigger, it's far more reaching. And so he sets his eyes on Jerusalem and he travels down in, into the area, okay? So here's where we jump into, into Matthew chapter 21. This is where we find ourselves, right? Here it is, chapter 21, verse one. It says, now when they drew near to Jerusalem, and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives. Now, let me just stop there, because in Matthew, he doesn't list it, but in Mark, he actually tells us that they came near to Bethany and to Bethpage. Why is that significant? I think it is, because Bethany was, would have been a natural place for Jesus to stop and stay the night. Who lives in Bethany? Mary and Martha, who also lives in Bethany. Lazarus. What happened to Lazarus? He died. In fact, when Jesus finds out that he's ill, he waits more time, and then eventually he dies, and then he comes to the people. And Mary and Martha, they're like, gosh, Jesus, if you had just have been here, he wouldn't have died. And Jesus says some very powerful things in this moment. Look at John 11. It says, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. You go, wow, how, how powerful is that statement? Like, that's so powerful. And then he asks a very powerful and a very important question. 
Do you believe this? Keep in mind, it's before he raises Lazarus from the dead. Yes. And so he raises him from the dead, and, and you know, they enjoy these great meals. And so all of a sudden, I'm guessing that Jesus is spending time in Bethany before they're entering into Jerusalem. Can you just imagine like, what that conversation was like with, with the people in Bethany? Hey, Jesus, do you remember that one time when you, when you raised Lazarus from the dead? Okay, guys, yeah. Uh, a, I'm Jesus. I don't forget. B, it was four months ago. Like, it's, it's right here. It's in my mind, right? And they're like, man, like, how cool was that? And you're like, you think that was cool? Give it a week. Give it a week. Because something so much more powerful is about to happen that will radically change the way that the world operates. Right? And so here's this thing, right? Imagine the conversation. Okay, look at verse 2, right? The story goes on. He says that they're coming really to Bethpage, right, which is just kind of the next town up. And he says to them or to a few disciples, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Okay, great. That's awesome. Like, you look at this, and one of the most natural questions that people like to ask here is how in the world did he know? I don't know. One commentator I, I read, uh, he goes, you know, it's possible that Jesus just had an arrangement with a guy. I was like, boring. Come on. You know, like maybe it's divine knowledge. We don't know. But he does. And either way, I think that actually a far more important question is not how did he know, because that's rabbit trails. What do we know? Why is this important? That's a better question. Okay, look at the next verse. It says, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Okay, so why is this important? First and foremost, the obvious, he's fulfilling scripture. He's fulfilling a prophecy spoken by Zechariah a long time ago. Okay, that's really important, but there's extra added layers to this, and I want to start with this, right? So as we look at Jesus, so Jesus' movements here, right, if he were to start in Bethany, you know, then he would have, you know, kind of climbed up here or kind of come up the side of the mountain, because here's the Mount of Olives just to the east uh, of Jerusalem. In between the two is this big valley called the Kidron Valley, right? And it's, it's a pretty good climb, right? Um, and so if Jesus is kind of trekking here, right, he gets to this point, and what's he going to end up doing? This is, this is the path that he'll eventually take. You know, he'll probably come, you know, down the mountain. He'll go across the Kidron Valley. He'll go back up the mountain on the other side, and then he'll come potentially, I think, down this way through the southern gate and into Jerusalem, proper, okay? So that's why I think this, and you're going to go, why is that significant, okay? Take a look at this. There's some key words here, right? The key word in the sentence, or two key words, is king and donkey. King 
and donkey. You go, why in the world is that significant? Okay, this is where we're going to start to get to the expectations piece of this, right? Why the people, as they celebrate Jesus, have some of the wrong expectations. Because remember that Ruth ends with the line of David. We know that the Messiah or the coming king is going to come through the line and the lineage of King David. Okay? We know that that's true, but when you get to the end of David's life, with all of his successes, all of his accomplishments, he's brought peace and stability and, and, and firmness to the nation. And yet you go, did David conquer the most fundamental problems with the world? No. Right? He didn't. Did he, did he deal with the, the sin of humanity? No, he didn't. Right? And so at the end of David's life, right, there's this shift because there's still God's work, there's still redemption, there's still a Messiah to come. And so there's this power vacuum as David is about to pass and his son Adonijah sets himself up because he assumes I'll be king. And David's like, nope, that's wrong, bad assumption. Solomon is going to be king because that's what God told me. Solomon's going to be king. So what does he do? He sends for Solomon to come into Jerusalem, and he sends him his royal donkey to ride on. And in such a way, what he's doing is that he's saying, not Adonijah, Solomon is the rightful king. Here's why that's significant. Because the riding of the donkey happens at the spring of Gihon, only natural freshwater source right next to the city. Do you want to know where that is? It's right here. And so it's in this space that Solomon, the line of David, rightful king, next king, would trot on a donkey or slowly gallop, I don't know what they do, you know, into Jerusalem. And Jesus, I think, mimics the same steps as Solomon. You see, he knows exactly what he's walking into. He's fulfilling the prophecy, not just the prophecy. He's not just like fulfilling scripture. He's actually, he's, he's going he's gonna to build into the expectations of the people. Because when you see a guy coming on a donkey from the spring of Gihon, and people are shouting about this guy named King, what are you going to expect? King, like out with Rome. This is the time in which God is going to show up. He's going to depose the Roman rulers, and this guy right here is going to sit on the throne. He's going to reestablish our city. He's going to reestablish our nation, and life will be good. That, I think, is the expectation of the people. But we're getting a little far ahead of ourselves, okay? Look at verse 6, right? So Jesus says, I want you to go get the donkey. And so the disciples are, you know, good children. And they go and do um, as Jesus has directed them. They brought the donkey uh, and the colt and put, them on, and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. So Jesus is embracing this role of about what is about to happen. Now, when you think about this and you come to the top of this ridge, right? There's a, we call this the triumphal entry 
Because it, because it in, mimics and enacts this whole Solomon movement. We call it the triumphal entry. And so when I think of triumph, I go, man, I don't think that what Jesus is thinking about in terms of triumph is what the world and the city was thinking about in triumph. You know, when I was a sophomore in uh, college, a sophomore in college, I was living in Colorado at the time, and, um, and so I had a couple buddies that came out and visited, and so we went and we climbed uh, Long's Peak in Colorado, which is, you know, 14,000 footer, um, you know, not super safe, um, but super fun and, and great, and so we went and we climbed this thing, right, and so you get to the end and you go around and through the keyhole, and then you go across and cut across the narrows, and at the very end, you know, there's this big chute, it's like rock like this that's just like flat and you just got to put your hands in cracks and climb and scramble all the way to the top and I tell you what when I got to the top of that thing boy I felt triumphant I felt good you know and so like as a sophomore in college you know I was like yeah let's take a picture and so you got the three of us as guys and you do this no smile no rejoicing pure conquering pure triumph, right? And it's pureness in that. And yet, gosh, I go, for so many people who think about triumph, it's something that injects life into them. Whether it's a sport thing or a win thing or an accomplishment thing, it's injecting life into themselves. And for Jesus, triumph actually meant death. You see, it's a very different thing, a very different expectation for Jesus as he sits atop of this donkey. And here's the thing, as you were to crest the, the Mount of Olives, as you come from Bethpage just on the east, which by the way, Bethpage is the city limits for Jerusalem. So he wants to make sure he rides that donkey all the way in through the whole and entire city limits. As he crests the top of this mountain, do you know what he's going to see? He's going to see this. He's going to see something similar to this, minus Nikki and I. Um, so in the background, right, you've got the walls of old city Jerusalem and the temple. And as you look at that, you know, that, that gold kind of dome in the middle, that's the dome of the rock because the, because the temple mount right now is actually under occupation um, for the Muslims. And so what's very difficult for the Jews in today's world actually is somewhat similar, not the same, but similar back then. Because as Jesus were to crest this hill and as he would give pause and look down at the city in front of him, what he's going to see is the temple. And the temple was the place where right relationship with God was determined. It was through sacrifices and offerings that we could be in right relationship with God. And yet, because of the stubbornness of humanity, in fact, we were labeled as people with a heart of stone. That's humanity. What if that was on your driver's license? If that was a way to identify yourself, this is me, Seth Dunham, heart of stone. Nice to meet you. I'm stubborn. I got nothing. That's who I am. Yeah, 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 you heard me. I don't like you either. Yeah, whatever. I don't care because I got a hard stone. Right? You give this. And so it's like, you know, you think about this and you go, man, as Jesus is looking into this moment, as he's looking into the temple, what he's realizing, I think, I guess if I'm just putting into Jesus here for a second, I know that's probably not right, but I go, man, if I'm Jesus, you're looking at a place where the glory of the Lord has departed. It's a place that's empty because of the stubbornness and the brokenness of human sin. 
And so for Jesus, atop of a donkey, at the top of this, I go, man, this is not a, a big triumphal, woohoo, here we go, guys. It's a sobering, somber thing, would be my guess. Because the rightful king, the creator of the universe, standing on a hill that he created, riding atop of a donkey he created, looking out at a group of people that he created in his image who are broken and in wrong relationship with God, knows that with each step that he takes closer to Jerusalem is one step closer, not to his life, but to his death. And all of a sudden we go, man, that's the perspective of Jesus, that's the perspective of Jesus. But by the way, guys, that's not the perspective of the people. Look at verse 8. It says, Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before them and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. We just sang that song. We just sang that song. Guys, so here's the deal, right? So as we're, as Jesus is making this trek, right? Which, by the way, by the way, as Jesus is making this journey, they're all traveling to Jerusalem. Why? For the Passover. It's one of the required festivals uh, in Judaism. And so people from around the known world would travel to Jerusalem. So 40,000 people on a weekday, 500,000 people at Passover. Massive uptick in population, right? And so Jesus, here's this guy, he's traveling along the way on a donkey. Let's just say he's right here, right? Here's him and his little group. Probably the people from, from Bethany and his disciples and Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And they're shouting all these crazy things. But because it's Passover and because everyone's traveling to Jerusalem, it's not just this little group of people. It's this. <laughs> I mean, like everybody's traveling. Everybody is around. And here's what they're hearing. They're hearing these people shout, Hosanna, right? Hosanna. That's what they're hearing them shout. Do you know what Hosanna means? Hosanna is a political term. That means, deliver me. It means, grant me my freedom. That's what it means. And you're like, wow, you're not saying anything wrong because we know what Jesus is about to do, but guess what? You're saying it wrong because that's not what it's about, right? That's what people are shouting as they're coming in. And in fact, this is what's so crazy, right? It says that the entire city is actually stirred because of this group. Half a million people stirred, right? And here's this crazy, I love this. What are they saying? What are they asking? They're asking this question, who is this? Who is this? That's their question. Like, who is it that's entering in? And all of a sudden, you begin to think about the palm branches, and you begin to think about the cloaks on the road, and now you go, man, like, you think about their expectations. Like, this is the king. This is the guy who's going to do it. Who is this? And people are like, here's the deal. It's Jesus, the prophet 
Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And you go, man, this feels incredibly triumphant, incredibly triumphant. And yet little do they know that what they think will bring them life will bring Jesus' death. So important. Guys, we've been in this, we've been in Ruth, we've been talking about redemption. And so redemption is this, as God looks into the brokenness and the chaos of the world, he says, I don't care if it's Seth's story or your story or all of the collective nature of humanity's story, I am not okay with this being broken. And so he engages and he interacts and he goes in and he buys back people. He buys back stories and situations for his own purpose, right? And so we know that God is a God of redemption. But here's the kicker. As we come back to this, right, you see here's the little story, The little story is that as the people look at Jesus triumphantly riding into the city, here's what they think. King, Jesus says, no, here's what it's about. King. You see, that's the confusion between the son and the small story and the big story, God's divine son who would be king. You see, what people were expecting as Jesus entered into the city was something along the lines of this. We see him coming in, and here's what we think. Here's what we want Jesus, this is what we want this guy to do, is that he's going to come in and he's going to be king. And what he's going to do is that he is going to fortify the walls of the city. He's going to depose Rome and boop them out of here, get out of here. He's going to take the city. He's going to make us a right city and a right nation. That's the expectations. That's this. Jesus says, no, that's not what I see. Here's what I see. I see a city full of people who on their driver's license, it says they have a heart of stone. And all of a sudden, you begin to think about how this is shifting because it's this whole city worth of people who are living in a broken relationship with God. And all that they can do to think about is that God would give them a new king. He's like, man, it's so far from what you need. And so when we look at this, we go, man, this is the greatness of God's redemption. And it's not just that it's a city. It's actually the entire world's worth of sin, right? And it's not just the entire world. It's all of the universe. It's all of the sin that will ever exist from past to present and to future. And all of a sudden, we begin to see that the greatness of God's redemption is far too great that sometimes you go, man, I just don't see it. I just can't comprehend how big that is. I'm missing maybe what's right actually in front of me. How big and beautiful this is. By the way, when Jesus rode in on a donkey, it describes, Matthew describes the donkey as it being a beast of burden. Jesus enters into the story and says, it's not what you want, but it is what you need. I will burden your sins. I will carry the burden of your sins. And I know that this looks, it's very messy. It would take forever to clean off in between services. Um, But here's the deal. Like you look at this 
And you go, that feels a little impersonal, so come back Good Friday, because we're going to talk and take a deeper look about how your sin is a part of this, and Jesus looks directly at you and says, hey, what you're carrying, I carried for you. Let me carry that. So I want to invite you to even bring your palm branch back on Friday as we celebrate Good Friday. And as we wrap up, I want to just share this question with you. Imagine if the church, the entire church, actively pursued and practiced redemption. What if? What if? How might that change the church? And how might that change the world? Because I do think that sometimes we miss it. Why do we miss it? Why is it that we can miss the greatness of God's love, the greatness of God's redemption? Sometimes I think the, the reason is just because of sheer size. Like you look at this and you go, that's so much bigger than I was expecting. It's like find the toothbrush and we find it. And we go, God, I need a toothbrush that I can clean this little bit of sin out of my mouth. And he's like, man, I got a toothbrush that will clean your whole body. It's a little weird. He's like, man, it's the sheer size. What you're anticipating doesn't match your surroundings. I get it. This is far greater than whatever you're looking for or experiencing in the world. So don't miss it. Because just like once you see the large toothbrush, you're like, well, duh, how did I ever miss that? That's how great it is. The second thing I think that we sometimes miss it is because we have wrong expectations. Maybe you go back to the small story, the little story, and you go, man, I'm so focused on God showing up and just giving me what I want. You're like, I don't really care that I'm leaking. I just want God to keep showing up and doing this. I, just, I don't care that I'm leaking. I just want God to keep showing up and keep giving me what I want. And maybe the last one is this, is that you're just not looking for it. Maybe you've spent a long time and you go, man, you're here today. And you go, I just have not been looking for this thing called Jesus, this guy named Jesus and the love that he offers. And as I think about this, you know, you come back to that beginning story with this young gal who's outside of the car, and whether somebody's joking, it doesn't matter. When they say, hey, have you seen or have you experienced, you can turn with confidence and say, it's easier than you think. It's about Jesus being in you, and you can have that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, this morning, Lord, as we finish and as we, as we wrap up, we're, we know we're moving on from Ruth and with this little big story, uh, and we've been able to wrestle with the ways in which our story is being intertwined in the midst of whether it's grief or rejoicing, being intertwined with your large story. And so, Lord, I think this morning as we're wrestling with this, Lord, I pray that, that you would be nudging and pulling inside of us in our brokenness and our grief, and you would remind us that it's as simple as you being full inside of us, that the only way to experience true and real fullness in this life is if Jesus is a part of our story. And that we would come to you this morning, not with palm branches that we wave, that we demand and expect a king that will give us whatever we want, but that we would wave palm branches with full rejoicement and sing, Hosanna, deliver me, not just from my grief, but deliver me from my sin. And that that would be the cry of our hearts. 
And so this morning, may we experience this rich and depth of your love that you come to us and say, no matter where you're at, I've got you. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.